Welcome to the Cover and Move podcast with Chip Perrin. This is episode four with Mr. Tom Thompson. Mr. Tom is a Marine. He spent his career as an attorney. He also raised a Marine and is involved with many veterans organizations and uh, he's truly been an inspiration in my life. So welcome, Mr. Tom. Welcome, Chip. Thanks for having me today. So, Mr. Tom, can you can you just kind of give me a few minutes about how you grew up and, and, you know, your life and what led you to the Marine Corps? Sure. I, I grew up around Singer, Louisiana. I was born in Leesville, Louisiana, and grew up in that area from Singer to Leesville, to Rutter, that stretch of the state. Graduated from Singer High School in 1968. There were 12 in our class. So we had a fairly big class for the school <laughs> at that time. In fact, tomorrow I'm attending a funeral for one of one of the, the original 12. There are nine of us left. And uh, after I got out of high school, I kind of worked in various odd jobs around there. Uh, tried to enlist in the Navy in 1968, July of 68. Uh, could not pass the physical. Uh, was had to report for my draft uh, examination in September of '68. Failed that, um, and then tried in early '69 to once again join the Navy and and failed that. They figured out that stress from the from the examinations, something called white coat syndrome is what was bothering me. So the Marine Corps took a chance on me and enlisted me, and uh, the rest is history. So you, you're saying that the Marine Corps liked your determination, yep. and they let you in. <laughs> in fact, they, the, the recruiter said, son, I've got a deal for you. Oh, that's, that's and, always the words that you love to hear. And uh, I, I snapped at the chance. But the reason I joined the Marine Corps, I was working for the Kansas City Southern Railroad, uh, third generation, and we were doing a, a uh, construct of a line out to Boise Southern, north of Doretta. And an old gentleman that I worked with, who worked with my grandfather, who was a conductor on the railroad, was called back to the station and informed that his youngest son, who was in Vietnam as a Marine, had been critically wounded and it didn't look like he was going to make it through and the old man sat there and cried and it affected me to such a degree that I was determined to change the outcome and get in the Marine Corps one way or the other and uh, it, it succeeded I went from a monthly salary of about $1,900 net to $90 as a private in the Marine Corps. And uh, uh, I think that was the most momentous decision I ever made in my life, next to marrying my wife. Wow. So, and and, uh, I know that the Marine Corps has stayed with you throughout your whole life, but what, what was your feeling when you... They pulled you out of the bus and stood you on the yellow footprints. My first thought was, Thompson, what in the hell have you gotten yourself into? Uh, a lot of yelling, 
a lot of shouting. I was an older, older recruit. I turned 20 in boot camp shortly after after I was I was uh, assigned to platoon, and uh, it was it was chaos. It was chaos. I I thought seriously, perhaps I had not made the the wisest choice, uh, but. Fifty years later, in hindsight, yeah, it was a good decision. Yeah, I remember being in all that chaos, you know, and and thinking back on it, it, it was a beautiful chaos. I mean, it just taught me so much. But at the time, I was like, well, you know what? You screwed up. You joined the Marine Corps, but you got to stick it out. Cause you, you live you with your decision. Yeah, you certainly you got to make the best of it. And, and I mean, shoot, by the end of boot camp, I was. And those yellow footprints that are at forty-five degree angles perfectly aligned, signifies what the Marine Corps is about. Organization, uh, structure, command structure, and dedication to the, to the mission. So, so how did you do in boot camp? I mean, did you... I, uh, I, for the first couple of weeks was, was kind of a tryout for me. <clears throat> as, as I said, I was... I was in there on a remedial medical program, and I knew that if, if, if I didn't succeed, they were going to wash me out. But I was determined to succeed, and at the end of the eight weeks, and boot camp back then was eight weeks, Vietnam War was going on, and they needed, they needed uh, uh, troops. I was, uh, I was series honor man, blues honor man, platoon honor man, shot expert and uh, graduated at the top of the at the top of the the, the battalion. So you're a battalion guide? Or, um, I, was con- I was a platoon guide. Yeah, uh, battalion honor man, <coughs> I guess? Series honor man, Series battalion honor, right. honor man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Promoted oh. to private out of boot camp uh, and obtained a meritorious promotion from infantry training school to Lance Corporal. So your your career in leadership started there. It did. It did. I mean, you you kind of emerge, and that's what the Marine Corps tends to do is is bring maybe born leaders or even create leaders. They the Marine Corps saw something in me that I didn't know was there, and they were able to extract that uh, from me, challenge me to do the job, <clears throat> and uh, I guess they did it with some success because it's been, it's been a major impact throughout my life. Uh, whatever, whatever I've done, whatever I've achieved, I attribute to the Marine Corps boot camp. Uh, Outstanding. Now, <clears throat> from boot camp, uh, I would imagine you go to combat training I was I had the the top assignment that you can get in the Marine Corps as an 0311 infantry rifleman and uh, we went from being fresh Marines one day to raw material for basic infantry training school the next day uh, I uh, that was a short Short school. Every every Marine goes through basic infantry training. Every Marine's a rifleman. 
And from there, we, we 0311s went to advanced infantry training school. Uh, it's called something else today. Um, school of Infantry. Right, SOI. SOI. And uh, I, was, I was appointed as company guide and remained company guide throughout the whole training cycle. And at the end, uh, they promoted me to Lance Corporal. So I was in the Marine Corps four months and uh, had already made it to Lance Corporal, which is not unusual, but it was, seemed to be unusual for me. Absolutely. Uh, from there, we went to, we had a 30-day leave, and then we reported back to staging. Uh, so what, what tropical lo location did you get? Uh... Uh, I drew, I drew the, the 1st Marine Division and uh, had, a, had a visit to that beautiful Republic of Vietnam Jeez. for a stretch and uh, was assigned to 1st Platoon, Mike Company, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, 1st Marine Division. So this 30 days after SOI, you're... You're reporting to, to Vietnam. This is February, the end of February. We went over, and uh, by 1st of March, I was in the company, in the field, uh, and uh, doing what Marine rifle companies do in time of war. Now, do you remember just getting into country and, you know, the feeling of oh the, the you know, just imminent action that you're going to see or, or I, uh, anticipation of, of, of what's to come? The thing that struck me most about my deployment was I, uh, I was issued three sets of camouflage, jungle, jungle camouflage, and two sets of jungle boots on Okinawa. <clears throat> And I flew to Da Nang on a C-130, and my in-flight meal was a bologna and cheese sandwich, and I'll never forget this, a half pint of somewhat soured milk and an orange that had probably expired on the shelf a little bit too long, because it was, it was just a little bit off taste, but it was, it was a pretty good meal. So I landed in Da Nang, and... Uh, uh, reported to the division command, who immediately took one set of my jungles from me and one set of my jungle boots. So I had two new sets of jungle utilities, one that I had on, one in my sea bag, and the new jungle boots that I had on. I get to uh, the regimental headquarters at LZ Baldy, and they take the other set. So I'm, I'm there with just what I had on, and I get to the company and I'm told, you need to get rid of the, uh, the jungles that you have on because they're new and they're bright and they're green. You need some old faded. You need to look like a salty. <laughs> so so that, was, that was where my third set of new jungle utilities went, wherever, wherever it went in the battalion. And uh, I, was, I was in the company area for a couple of days for indoctrination. And then the first, first uh, time that I joined the company, it was at a place called the Culverts on a gravel road between LZ Baldy and, and Firebase Ross. And uh, 
the first night there we were hit second night there we were hit and uh, I think within the week we became a blocking force for Indian Kilo and the reason I remember this so well is because one of the machine gunners in the platoon had been wounded and I was back then I was 6'2 something's happened over the years I'm 6'1 I'm now I don't know where I lost the inch but anyway I was young, strapping, and strong, so the platoon sergeant decided that I would make an excellent machine gunner and uh, gave me a machine gun, loaded it, said, don't run out of the ammunition. Uh, you're assigned to this squad as a machine gunner, and they went out on an ambush that night, and that was how I became an O352 weapons. And this is, uh, this is on the job training? Of the highest, <laughs> of the highest order. <laughs> And the thing that struck me most was don't run out of ammunition. Don't let the belt um, run through without coupling another one on because I didn't know how to load the damn thing. He had to show me how to load it. I'll be damned. And uh, that was how I became a machine gunner. Now, um, you said you guys were getting hit. Uh, is this with small arms fire, with mortar fire? It was small arms and mortar fire. Okay. Uh, we worked the Khoisan Mountains in I-Corps out of LZ Baldy, which is southwest of Da Nang, probably about 25 miles. Uh, our, our schedule <clears throat> was in the bush 25 days, and the missions were search and destroy. We would return to Baldy for three days. Uh, you got clean jungles. You got to take a good hot shower. You got hot meals in the chow hall. You resupplied your ammo. Uh, you restocked your cigarette pile. Uh, you got your mail from home. Uh, saw movies. And uh, got ready to go back out again if you were there for the complete three days. Usually, we weren't because we were the react company for the battalion. If another company in the battalion was hit and needed relief, um, we saddled up and and went to their their so assistance. You, so you guys served as a quick reaction force to anybody that came into contact. Yeah, yeah, got it. And uh, so when you got there, you you got your business done first. Right, got because, that done. Yeah, you may not be there that long. So you never really got to be too comfortable. No, no, no. Now, you know, I've. I've read some things about the Vietnam War, about just the, the difference in, you know, some of the people that stayed on these bases versus the guys that would go in the field like you. It's just two different lives. Yeah. And uh, did you guys keep that pace, I mean, your entire deployment? That was, if, if you were assigned to a rifle company, that's what you did. That was your life. That was it. 25 days in the bush. At least that was how our operations worked. Uh, I was on three campaigns and three operations the time that I was in Vietnam. And I wasn't there a whole, whole tour. Uh, they pulled us out in October of 70 with the uh, Vietnamization of the war. Uh, but uh, during that time, I, I, yeah, I, saw, I saw my share, I, I think. of Absolutely. Uh, so how... 
how long of a period was that from, from when you started to... Oddly enough, it was about eight months. That's a full deployment. Which is a full deployment today. Back then, a full deployment was 12 months. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, if, you, if you made it through 12 months, you were, you were, you were lucky. Uh, so I, I never looked back. I, uh, I went in with the attitude that what's going to happen is going to happen. I can't change it. I volunteered for this, and I'm going to make the most of it. Uh, my buddies who mattered. Uh, that's who we fought for, each other. We were in a strange land far away, uh, in a free fire zone, and uh, we were quite dangerous. So, uh, yeah. Now, when, when you joined your company, were you the new guy, or was your whole platoon brand new? There were 11 of us that joined the company at, at one time. So uh, you, you kind of joined a company that was already... Oh, yeah. In fact, the the company, M Company, we, we euphemistically... There, well, let me back up. There was a, a, a documentary made of the company of its years in, in country in 66, 67, and it was entitled a company called Mike. And that's... We had a, we had a, a signboard in front of our company's headquarters at Baldwin that says a company called Mike. But we euphemistically called it Medevac Mike because it had the reputation if you if you were assigned to Mike Company 3-7, you were going to get hit. Uh, so it was uh, yeah, it, it was it was quite an experience. So when you when you joined the company um, did you have anybody that kind of took you under their wing and showed you the ropes? You know, so I had a, I was fortunate. Um, there was a, uh, and he still lives in New Sarpy, Louisiana, uh, a fellow by the name of Wesley Richard. We were the only two from Louisiana. And Wes had been there since, well, I guess... He was a squad leader, so he had been there for a while, and uh, he kind of, he kind of took me under his his wing. But I was a member of his squad, uh, and he did this for all of his squad members. But we had that Louisiana connection, and uh, he was a tough he was a tough bird. He had fought Golden Gloves growing up in Louisiana. Uh, was very very proficient as a corporal in the Marine Corps. And he taught me how to be a squad leader. You know, it, it, so many people that I speak to that have had positive experiences in the service in general, a common theme is having that leadership early on in the fleet. You know, once you get yeah. to your unit, once you get in country, Whatever your final destination was, you know, when you're actually doing your job, having proper leadership. And I think that units that have success, um, they see that success because they believe in proper leadership. They do. And I, I was fortunate early on to have a, a great Marine 
I know this is going to sound odd to, to those who went through boot camp, but I think the, the Marine that had the, the greatest impact on me was my senior drill instructor, uh, Staff Sergeant Jones. He had, had a number of tours in Vietnam. I think he had seven Purple Hearts. And he was a hard, but he was a fair drill instructor. Wasn't given to shouting and hollering or what have you, but was dangerously quiet when he spoke to you. And he saw something in me. In fact, he was the one who made me platoon guide about a week and a half in, and I remained platoon guide throughout throughout my boot camp career. Saw something in me that I did not know was there. And he was able to extract it and show me how to put it in use. And that continued, it continues today. Uh, in fact, he and I had had a conversation the night before graduation just about what it meant to be a Marine, to be a man. Uh, and hell, I was 20 years old. Uh, and for, for that, for his leadership and his mentoring of me in boot camp, uh, I owe him a debt that I can never repay. He set the tone as to what it meant to be a Marine to me. And uh, I think it proved itself in Vietnam. Uh, I was... I was in country probably a month, and they made me a squad leader of a weapons squad. Now, mind you, they promoted me to corporal for an action against the enemy, gave me a squad, and I was not in the Marine Corps seven months yet. I was weapons squad, I was company supply sergeant for three weeks. And I, when we pulled out, I was a squad leader of a rifle squad. My whole time there, I, was, I had a squad, or I had some responsibility other than just being a rifleman. So you got a, you got a promotion in the field? I did, I did, uh, for an action against the, the, uh, the enemy. I was written up for a medal, and the company commander rejected the recommendation, saying that, I was doing what any Marine should have done under the circumstances. That was his opinion, and uh, but they promoted me to corporal. Outstanding. With six, little more than six months in the corps. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on, you know, you took a leadership role. I did. And through the rest of your deployment and career. I did. I. Uh, as a, as a squad leader of the weapons squad, I had six men, I had three teams, and only two guns with no extra barrels. I mean, that was how, that was how bad it was. So I, I broke my teams up, permanently assigned them to each team to a rifle squad. We had three rifle squads in the platoon, and I'd rotate the guns instead of the teams. And I would, I would go with with the squads that were going either on daytime patrol or nighttime ambush, I was an extra gun. 
I can't tell you how many, how many patrols I went on, how many ambushes, how many killer teams. It, it just seemed to be day after day of that. But I was an extra gun, and uh, uh, you have to understand that tactical strength, the ideal tactical strength of a Marine rifle platoon is probably around 45. If we had 30 men in our platoon, it was a good day. It was a good day. We were understaffed or undermanned, under-equipped, but we got the job done. So what do you think, what do you think was the, uh, was the quality that, that you guys had that got the job done? I mean, was it just that, it was, know, tactical awareness? Was it aggression? Was it just... It was a loyalty to each other. We knew we were all there. Most of us had been, had volunteered to be there. We had a mission to do, and we were going to complete it. And you looked out for each other. Uh, and that was where, really, the Brotherhood of the Corps bore in on me. That was where I realized what, what the Marine Corps, being a Marine, was all about. It's, uh, it's about your brother Marine. It's about the guy in the fighting hole next to you. Uh, that probably hasn't slept uh, eight hours a night since he's been there. He's getting short. He's ready to go home. Uh, he's seen enough combat. Or it's the new guy who doesn't know what in the hell is going on. Is statistically the first to go in a, in a in an engagement because he's new, he doesn't know what's going on. Um, and how to survive as a unit, as a group. Um, to this day, I still see the faces of my friends as I went to Grace registration to identify the body. They didn't make it, I did. So the challenge that I had when I got back was how do you live your life in, in light of their loss? Uh, do you make your life worthwhile to their memory? Or do you give way to self-pity? Uh, and I chose, I chose to live my life in a manner worthy of their memory. Well said. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of the Marine Corps. That's the beauty of, you know, of any service member getting out the best way to honor our brothers and sisters who didn't make it is to, to live a life yeah. worth living. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd rather be someone that, that helps another brother or sister, um, you know, then tear someone down. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you see these people and, and they get out of the service and they, you know, they may not continue this upward trajectory. You know, you got in the Corps and, and you became a, a leader right away, you know, from boot camp.
to SOI to, to your time in Vietnam and then your career and, and your your position in your society yeah. grew quickly. <clears throat> um, and when you got out, you could have chose to go a different path, maybe, you know, yeah. drinking and, and drugs and all these other things that people fall into. So what did, what did you do when you got out? What, what was your plan? I, uh, I, uh, when I got back from overseas, uh, actually I had, uh, I had been, when they pulled us out, they, they reassigned me to an infantry unit on Okinawa, Delta 1-4. And we had, they sent us to the Philippines because the communists were making noise uh, around the naval, naval station at Subi Bay. And then the Marine Corps being what it is, somewhat, you never know what's going to happen. I, they sent me to Mount Fuji in December of 70 for cold weather training. Now, I had been in rather hot climate for most of the year, and I went to a climate where it was zero degrees. And the, the funny part is that um, I was in the fourth company of the battalion. The equipment, the cold weather equipment was, was issued by company alphabet and then alphabetically within the company. So I'm Thompson, assigned a Delta company. Whatever was left over didn't fit. You're right. Yeah, it didn't fit. But I was thankful to have it. We spent 45 days on Mount Fuji. Uh, special combat training, cold weather combat training, the most miserable time of my life. And uh, I rotated back to the States the end of February. And while I was home, I received orders. My original orders were, were to report to Camp Pendleton uh, as a weapons instructor. Uh, my orders were changed, and I was reported to the Commandant, 8th and I, Marine Barracks, uh, for assignment. I got there in March, and I stayed there for two years. Um, these are the guys that, that have the parades every Friday night, uh, Tuesday night at the at the Evil Monument at Arlington. We stood funerals. Uh, but my principal duty was was uh, as part of the Marine Corps Institute, where we wrote and administered the correspondence courses that Marines have to take in order to, get, to obtain promotion. Really? Yep. So while I thought this was going to be good duty, uh, we were there May 1st, the first weekend of May of 1971. Uh, it was the famous May Day riots. The, the uh, anti-war movement, this is when John Kerry threw his medals over the White House fence and uh, declaimed that, that uh, we were barbarians and what have you. Uh, we were assigned the 14th Street Bridge with orders that the bridge was to remain open at all costs. Uh, the rioters were taking over this, trying to take over the city to shut down the government to end the war in Vietnam. And the president had said, that's not going to happen. Then we had the, the riots from the the bombings of Hanoi and Haiphong harbors 
that brought the NBA back to the Paris Peace Accord table that eventually led to the, the Peace Accord. Uh, and there were some highlights. I stood Nixon's second inaugural parade uh, with the company. I was, I was platoon guide for first platoon. And uh, then I had... Uh, I, I, see a, I see a pattern forming here. Platoon guides, yeah. company guides. I was, uh, I was uh, part of the... In fact, the whole company was part of the burial, a funeral uh, organization for President Johnson when he passed away later that month, in January of 73. Uh, I stood top of the Capitol steps on the leading up to the rotunda where the body was. And those are probably the two coldest days in my life since, since Fuji. Uh, in fact, uh, during the inaugural parade, we had to wet our gloves so our, we could handle our rifles and do the, do the manual of arms as we, as we passed in review. But our gloves froze to the, to the weapons. That was how cold it was. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, and then from there, I was, uh, I was transferred to Pendleton, and I was pretty sure I was going to get out because I had, I had uh, started the process to enter McNeese. This was in March of 73. I get to Pendleton, I had about six months left, and they made me a, a troop instructor for a uh, infantry training company at uh, the School of Infantry. I was a blue helmet. And uh, we ran everywhere we went, everywhere we went. But my company commander was uh, a Mustanger that I had served with in Vietnam. Okay, so you, you reconnected with him. You reconnected with him, and the, the platoon sergeant that gave me the machine gun in Vietnam was my platoon sergeant at 8th and I. The company gunnery in Vietnam... Gunnery Sergeant Sutter was <coughs> Company Gunnery Sergeant at 8th and I. So that's, the Marine Corps is small enough that you you meet up with your your uh, brother Marines at, at later, later assignments. So uh, that was when I, I decided I needed to go to college uh, and uh, began the process and I was separated out August of 1973, just in time to make it back to Lake Charles to enroll in school. Um, and then, oddly enough, I had negotiated with the Marine Corps for reenlistment. Uh, they were willing to give me a staff sergeant rocker, but I thought I deserved to. And they weren't willing to go that far. <laughs> so, so the negotiations broke down. Um, but I thought it was... I thought it was, may as well give it a shot. You That's never right. know. You gotta so, take a shot. You know? <laughs> so, so how was that transition from the Marine Corps to college? It was, it was surreal. Uh, you know, as, as a Marine, you go to class, you sit down. Here it is, gentlemen. You, you, you learn it, you get up, and you leave. College was a little bit more laid back. Uh, and it took me a while to, I guess, to relax. Um, my first semester I went to McNeese, 
I transferred to UL or USL back then for a semester, and then I transferred back to Magnese. Um, and then, then I got married, and I didn't have, <clears throat> I didn't have a, I didn't have the conventional college experience. I got married in '74. My first child was born in '75. Before she was born, I, I realized, hey, you've got to go to work. You've got a wife. You've got a child on the way. You're working on your undergraduate degree. My wife was working on her master's degree at Magnese Business Administration. <clears throat> so I, I became an investigator for the Department of Corrections at the De Quincey facility. And I would go to class from 8 to 12, and I would drive to De Quincey from 12 to 1. My shift reported at 1, and I'd work from 1, 1 to 9. That was the arrangement. I would make it back to Lake Charles about 10.30, I would study a couple of hours, uh, grab a few few hours sleep, and back up the next morning. And that was my day. Uh, from 8 to 12 class, uh, 12 to 1 travel, 1 to 9 work, 9 to 10.30 travel, 10, depending on how fast I drove. And... Uh, I did that for almost three years. So that's where that determination comes back into your life. You know, we we saw that getting into the core. Now we see that you know, you, you in college. By that time, we had a second child born, and I had to provide for my family. And uh, uh, there's a great shot, great picture that, and it was an article in the the Lake Charles American Press when. My wife and I graduated. They, they did an article on us, and uh, uh, the picture is we're both there in our cap and gowns. I'm holding the oldest child. She's holding the youngest child, and the story is about how we we managed to have two children and get two degrees in three years at Magnese. Wow! And uh, it was a. Uh, you do what you have to do to provide for your family. And you do it in the most honorable way that you can. Um, and in fact, I had the great fortune to help a veteran get a job. He was a student at Magnese, and he also hired on at the, uh, the correction facility. So he and I would take turns driving, but that was our, our and we'd share the gas expense and, and what have you. And we did that until, well, I left earlier than him. I had about six months left to go before graduation and hired on as a security guard for the uh, women's freshman dorm. You had to be married and you had to be a certain age. And I, I satisfied both requirements. And... Uh, so that was a good duty. I didn't have to drive, and I could study. I just had to make sure that the that the foxes didn't get in the hen house. Right. And uh, in fact, when my oldest son was born, my wife was in class. It was a an economics class, three hour class. When she went into labor, and she came in, she 
she went from, we only had one car, and so she drove the car. She went from the class to where I was, and every time she, the labor pains, the contractions would hit, she would stop the car. And she finally made it to the dorm, and uh, I got a relief, and, and uh, we went to the hospital, and that's where my oldest son was born. Uh, and it's, uh, you do the best you can under the circumstances. And so long as you do that, you can, you can, you can be self-satisfied. You can be satisfied with what you, what you've done so long as you can say, I did the best I can. You may not succeed, but failure comes only when you decide to quit. You keep going, you keep going until you get the mission accomplished. And that's what the Marine Corps taught me. It, uh, it taught me that in law school, which was a, a disaster. I don't think I've, I've often said if I had the choice between boot camp and law school, I'd take boot camp at a heartbeat. Uh, but I survived both of them. And, and from there, my, my career as a, as a lawyer took off. You know, when I was in boot camp, my older sister, she was in law school yep. at LSE Law, and uh, we'd write letters to each other, and I used to tell her that all the time. I said, I'd rather be here than there. <laughs> I don't think I can survive over there, but I can make it here. <laughs> all I gotta, here, I just got to put one foot in front of the other. Um, yeah. So what was that experience like? Law school? Yes, with the family. How did you manage that? It... Uh... By, by the skin of our teeth. Uh, Marlene was, she had, she had her MBA by then. And I had, I had done some work in the oil field and was doing consulting work. And you weren't supposed to work your first year in law school. Back then, they weeded them out pretty quick. The freshman year, we lost over half our class at the end of the freshman year. Boom, just gone. But I managed to hang on by the skin of my teeth, and uh, but she was she was the executive assistant to the secretary of the Department of Cultural Recreation and Tourism back then. And my first job, I was I was I worked in the legislative bureau during the summer of my first year, and after that, uh, I did consulting work and. Just enough to get us by, but we principally relied on her. And I had the GI Bill. And the GI Bill carried us through our fr my freshman year of law school. Four years in, of undergraduate and then the freshman year in law school. And we lived we lived in student housing, so we, we had a break there. Um, but I didn't, have to, I didn't have to take out any loans uh, for, for school, so we came out okay. Uh, I was not a good, not a good law student. Well, I thought I was. I didn't get along with my professors, uh, but I managed. And uh, before I went to law school, I, I I knew Judge 
Richard Putnam from Abbeville, he told me, he said, look, he said, uh, he said, if you, um, if you do good in law school, look me up and, and, uh, talk to me about being, being my law clerk. I said, okay. So I graduated from law school and I got a phone call one day. And during the four years, the three years that I was in law school, we'd, we'd communicate, we'd chit-chat and what have you. My wife eventually became secretary for his son, his oldest son, Richard Putnam III. Stayed with him for 25 years as, as a secretary, 20, 25 years. But, so I get a call, and it's the judge. And he said, I thought you were going to call me. Essentially, that's where the conversation ran. I said, well... I said, the requirement was that I do good in law school. I didn't do that good. I didn't good enough to pass, to graduate, but not that good. And, you know, I didn't call you. He says, you let me decide what good is. He said, I want to see you in my office in a couple of days. So I, we're living in Baton Rouge. I drive over. And uh, we have a face-to-face talk. And I said, look, he said, I said, can't hold you to that because I didn't I didn't hold up my end. He says, says, you let me worry about that. You stay with me and I'll teach you how to be a lawyer. And he hired me. And at the end of the first year I said, look, Judge, I I need to start looking for a for a job on the outside. And he says, Why you plan on going somewhere? And uh I said, well, you know, my year's up. He said, no. He says, why don't you stay another year? So I stayed another year. And at the end of the second year, same thing. He says, no, you don't need to go anywhere. Just stay here. I was his senior law clerk for almost four years. And uh, outside of the Marine Corps, in the legal field, that old gentleman taught me what it meant to be a lawyer and what it meant to be a, a judge. How, how to do it. How to, how to interact with people, civilians. You know, there's a special way that Marines interact with each other that is often misunderstood or not understood at all by civilians. Right. So, uh, he, uh, next to the Staff Sergeant Jones, Senior United States District Judge Richard J. Putnam is probably the most instrumental individual in my life. Right up there with my father-in-law. And at the, it was almost the end of the fourth year he called me in and told me that uh, two attorneys from the Department of Justice had discussed with him about the possibility for hiring me. And I asked him, what, what do you think I should do? And he says, you ought to take the job. So I, I did, and that was March of 84. I left his office on a Friday afternoon and Monday 
I started as an assistant United States attorney. He swore me in, and I was assistant U.S. attorney from March of 1984 to October, September the 30th, 2011. And wow. that, was, that was my career. That's a heck of a career. You know, it was. It was. Uh, I had... Uh, I had a good career. Uh, I put my principal point was always deal with people fairly and stick to the truth. You have your opinion. Every man has an opinion, but every man is not entitled to the facts as demonstrated by the evidence. And from the facts emerges the truth and you deal with the facts and the evidence honestly, fairly, and uh, I think I had a pretty good reputation. When I retired, I was just going to ease out the back door. I had decided 35 and a half years was enough. Uh, I was gonna just quietly ease out the door, but they had other plans for me. So they had other plans? They had other plans. I'd, I'd announced that I would be retiring effective September 30th, 2011. Unbeknownst to me, the office had put together a retirement ceremony that involved actual opening court. There were five federal judges on the bench. Uh, they had representatives from the Internal Revenue Service, ICE, FBI, DEA, speak in glowing terms of this individual who I wasn't sure they were talking about me or not, you know, I, I was just an old Marine jarhead doing what I should have been doing under the circumstances. Uh, I even had one of my assistant U.S. attorney mentors, there were two guys in the office that set the, the bar for me. One is Jack Halliburton. Uh, Jack was, he's 80-something he's years old, still active in the field of law, teaches business law at, at uh, uh, Phoenix University in Dallas, remains active at, at the S, uh, SMU Law School, and the other one was Dosate Perkins. Dosate was our appellate attorney. He taught me federal appellate practice. Uh, but the... Fifth Circuit Judge Gene Davis presided over the over the ceremony and uh, had the family there. Everybody was brought in. Uh, courtroom was packed. It was full, and I was just I was blown away. I didn't know. I figured something was up, but I didn't know the extent of what it was, and it was just. Uh, I was told that. It was one of its kind. It set the bar, and the standards have never been met since. Uh, my retirement was was placed in the congressional record. Uh, my service in Vietnam was placed in the congressional record. I was I was issued a citation by the United States Senate for the service to the United States. Uh, and it was it was a culmination of 
of almost 28 years of what I felt to be honest, straightforward work. Uh, I was at one time the civil chief, chief of the civil division for the office. I was senior litigation counsel for the Western District of Louisiana. And when I retired, I was a member of the Department of Justice evaluation team that evaluated U.S. attorneys throughout the United States. Um, so it was a good career. It, it, uh, it, uh, it was a career that, that I was satisfied with because I had done my best with what I had, and I had achieved, to me, great success. And uh, I look back on it fondly. Very, very much so. Outstanding. Um, you know, you're the you're the example, you know, of of what a marine, a determined marine, can do. And you just had it. You had the work ethic, the discipline, the determination, and and the and, will to. And you don't let the negative stop you. I'm 100% service-connected disabled. Um, part of that's PTSD. Most of it's as a result of being exposed to the defoliants that were used in the war. But growing up, and as, as I said, graduated 12 in my high school class. It can't be said that we were the top-line school, but we, we could read and we could write and we could reason. And I think if, if people can do that, they're, they're on their way to, to obtaining what they, they need to succeed in life. But my best friend's father was a Marine. He joined the Marine Corps in 1929, something like 16 or 17 years old. <coughs> and uh, his, his, so he, his first duty station was in China, hence the term China Marine. A group of Marines that were stationed in China back in the, the late 20s. <coughs> and through the course of his career, he had some some horrendous experiences, but he re always reminded me of Popeye. Short, had the crew cut, smoked a stubby pipe, and uh, he was at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. He was in the island campaigns in World War II. In fact, the, the tip of his left hand, forefinger in his left hand had been shot off, and he used that stub to tamp down tobacco in his pipe. He got out after World War II, stayed on active reserve duty, was activated for Korea, was at Incheon, was at Frozen Chosen, made it back to the States, and was assigned to Southeast Asia, a special, special unit, when he decided enough's enough. Uh, 30 years as, and wound up as a master gunnery sergeant, he retired. Growing up, I was always a towhead 
kid lived down the road, uh, typical of the American youth back then. It changed somewhat in his attitude towards me. I mean, we were always good friends, but it was, it was different the way he looked at me. When, when I went in the Marine Corps, but the, the perception of change really occurred when I got back from Vietnam. I was no longer just that two-headed kid from down the street. I was a combat Marine. And we communicated on a, on a plane not experienced by most of the people. We knew what, what combat was about. We knew what, what Marines were designed to do. There's an article that I keep on my computer that says what it means to be a Marine. And it talks about how if you're a, if you're a soldier, if you join the Army, you hear the caissons go rolling along and you can be all that you can be. Uh, if you join the Navy, you get to see the world and it's anchors away, or if you if you join the Air Force, it's up, up, and away, and you float from cloud to cloud. When you join the Marine Corps, it's the hymn tells of our combat, and it tells of our commitment to be trained to kill. And therein lies the difference. A soldier or a sailor or an, or an airman is a soldier or a sailor or an airman when you sign the enlistment papers. In the Marine Corps, when you sign the enlistment papers, you're a recruit. You don't become a Marine until you finish boot camp and you finish your training. Then you get to put the Eagle Globe and anchor on your chest and call yourself a Marine. And therein lies the difference. And the, the, the article winds up that to be a Marine means that you'll never die. We may die from combat or we may die or die in a nursing home. But we're always alive. Because the author feels, and I do too, that every Marine that ever lived lives in the Marines that are alive today because our tradition, our training, our history is, is pounded into us from that first day in boot camp to graduation day and out in the fleet. You are a Marine. You are part of a brotherhood. You are part of something larger than yourself. And your experiences have been experienced before. It's nothing new. And we will take care of you because you're our brother, just as you will take care of us. And that commitment's for life. It is. You know, and so it is. the life that you lived and any other Marine, you're living out your brother's life. And then your life will, you know, when you pass on, there'll be other Marines living out for you. You, it, 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 that is the continuity of the core. 
And an American military system without the Marine Corps is just unthinkable. We are, we are that special branch of service. We are the first to fight. Um, there is an interesting juxtaposition. All right, let, let me say, let me back up. There's an interesting statistic I wasn't aware of. I want to say 2012. They have this thing called Welcome Home Vietnam Veterans. And it's March of each year. And it's, it's a nice affair. And the first, the first one we had was, was at uh, Como Community Center in Lafayette. I think that's where it is. Out by the high school. And there were probably five or six hundred veterans in the audience. And we had Bustani and we had Vitter. But they invited me to speak. And I had a good friend who spoke as well, Lloyd King. Lloyd just passed away. We're going to have a memorial service for him in June. I'm going to speak at the memorial service. But Lloyd was in the Army, won the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, two Purple Hearts, two Air Medals. So he knew what combat was about. We were fairly good friends, good friends. But my speech that day was, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and I'm proud to be so. And uh, it was the first time I had occasion to state publicly. You know, it's one thing to speak among friends, but to stand up and say, this is what I am, this is what I experienced, and I'm proud of that experience. I'm proud of what it taught me. And at the end, I shook every veteran's hands in that, that audience, and many of them thanked me for saying exactly what I had to say, that I was proud to be a Vietnam veteran. I was proud to have fought for my country. I was proud to have fought to resist socialism and communism. And, uh, and many of them had tears in their eyes. It was at that point that I said, this is something bigger than me. I need to give back. Now that I have time, I'm retired. And that was when I began to become involved in the veterans movement, the American Legion, the Marine Corps League, uh, Veterans Coalition that led to the creation of the two clinics. Uh, and I employed the same, same determination for those endeavors as I did in the Corps. Because we're all veterans. And if we don't look out for each other, no one's going to look out for us. I think history has proven that. I gave an interview on Channel 10 sometime back. And it was, it was Memorial Day. And it was when the clinics were being debated and what have you. And I said, listen, I said, the nation that refuses to, to take care of those men and women who defended the nation in time of war deserves neither respect nor freedom. Uh, 
to let those who, who put their lives on the line essentially just fade away without care and without treatment is abhorrent. It's just a, it's a foreign idea to me, particularly the young ones that come back. Do you know that in Vietnam there were more Marines as a total casualty killed and wounded in Vietnam than in World War II? Really? There were 86, a little more than 86,000 Marines killed and wounded in World War II. There was approximately 101,500 Marines killed and wounded in Vietnam. Now there were more Marines killed in World War II than in Vietnam. But the difference is because of the medical treatment that we received in the field that saved many of our lives. Our young veterans today who, who are engaged in Iran and Iraq with traumatic head injuries, uh, missing body parts that would have died during my time, they've survived today. There's absolutely no excuse, and I don't care who, who it is, it's the pre if it's the President, or if it's the Secretary of the VA, if it's the Speaker of the House or the Senate Majority Leader, there's absolutely no excuse for young men and women coming back from war, maimed and injured, having to fight to get what we should provide freely, without question, and uh, it's just its just almost sinful uh, that our young men and women can't receive the care. I can never figure out why we need such organizations as Wounded Warriors and those types of organizations to take these wounded veterans and accommodate their lives when we have a whole damn organization that should be dedicated to doing that. Federally funded. Federally funded, without question, without having to fight the, the claims process, without having to fight the appeals process. Uh, well, we're an all-volunteer force now. We are. And so in the States, everybody now that's in the military signed it out of line knew what they were getting into yeah. and, and, and did it freely. Um, the least we could do is take care of them after we, they sacrificed their life. I mean, yeah. they sacrificed, you know, a, a really productive portion of their life when many people are in college or, you know, starting their careers, you give up four, yeah. 10, 20 years, right, to the country and, and our freedom and to do what you you know what you have to do to get your brothers and sisters home. It is. It is. I can't think of the word. But rest assured, the thought that runs through my mind is is absolutely important. Um, we should be bringing them in, modifying their homes without them having to go through this lengthy claims process and appeals process. I, at least that's the way I feel. Uh, I, I know people who, um, who 
for amputees. And like on a yearly basis, I think they have to go to the VA and prove that, that they still have... That they still are disabled. Right, that they still have the missing limb. Yeah. That it didn't grow back or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. It, it is. And that's what our service organizations do. At least that's what I like to think they do. The American Legion, the VFW, Purple Hearts, Marine Corps League, they are advocates for our veterans. And uh, we can't let those organizations uh, wither away on the vine. But we have to, and I've said this time and again, and no one has, has been able to establish how, we have to establish how these these organizations are relevant to young veterans. I think they view they view them with distrust. I don't know. Uh, I know I know they view the VA with with a great degree of distrust. But there's a reason why young men and women are not joining organizations that were created to help them through these processes. And I've not been able to pinpoint the reason why. Uh, all I know is that we're not getting young men and women in to carry on the traditions. Uh, for instance, our American Legion post will be 100 years old in 2019. We are the original number one American Legion post in the state. We were chartered December the 15th, 1919 as Vermilion Post number one. I am in the leadership of the post, the youngest one, and I'm 68. I'll be 69 on my birthday. And I look at my executive committee and I don't see young faces. And I can't figure out how to, to remedy that. Um, we invite the young people in. I, I almost believe that they have the sense that this is an organization for old guys, that they're just going to sit around and tell war stories and drink beer. And from the day I was, I was elected as commander, I dedicated myself to changing that view. We got rid of the bar. Uh, our business meetings are businesses. You don't sit, you don't chit-chat and bull BS about uh, your combat experiences. We do the business of the Legion at our meetings. Now, afterwards, that's another matter. You can stay and chit-chat as long as you want. And we've had some success, but we are top-heavy with Korean and World War II veterans, and we're losing them almost as fast as we're losing Vietnam veterans today. Uh, but we're still viable. We're still active in the communities. We give a lot to the communities. And, uh, and that's where I, I, I get my, my fulfillment as a retired assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, I've said 70 is going to be the, the mark the end mark for me. When I reach 70, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire again 
from the, the volunteer uh, activities, and my wife and I, we're going we're gonna to travel and we're going to enjoy what few years remain, remain to us. <clears throat> but through all of this, for the past 50 years, what has been indelibly marked on my heart is United States Marine Corps. That's that's where I return to. If I have an issue, look, there, there are only two questions in life that you need to answer. What is the issue and how do you resolve it? And it's not resolved by saying, well, we can't do it. It's resolved by saying, how do we arrive at a resolution? And those two questions have enabled me to have a certain sense of success for an for old country boy that came out of the piney woods of western Louisiana in a high school class of 12, in which just he and one other went to college. Um, and I attribute all of that to the Marine Corps. It was my second birth. And that's what boot camp is. You are reborn as a Marine. And if the training takes, whether you like to admit it or not, 50 years later, you're still a Marine, deep down inside. I agree 100%. It's, it's never there. And I go back, once again, to the faces of the men that I served with in combat. And I, I told you that, that I, I, I got my my combat promotion for doing what any Marine should have been doing under the circumstances. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I'll take it for what it, what it was said. But it was one hell of a hot day and we were on patrol and I was a machine gunner. And we had, we had a machine gun in the front, we had two squads on patrol that day, and I was responsible for the rear. And we came up on this village, and we knew we were going to get hit. Just didn't know when, didn't know how. And sure enough, we pushed through the village, and they hit us as we emerged out on the other side. Well, we pushed across the rice field, 100, 150 yards of clear rice field, and we set up a defensive perimeter. And we're getting fire, and the front gunner set up a position covering the, the, the village where we were receiving fire. And I pushed on to the backside for backside defense. And we had, I fired at some, I don't know if I hit anybody, but I like to think I did. And uh, started hearing guns up, guns up. I couldn't figure out why they were calling me to have a gunner in the front. Well, he had something happen to him. He froze in his position. He wasn't firing or whatever. And we had five Marines that were pinned down. Two had been wounded and three were trying to, to help them get to our line when they got cut off. One had been wounded in the chest and one had been shot through both legs. And the other three were helping him. 
and they would just, the fire was coming at them just terribly. And I had an egg gunner by the name of Bryant. Bryant was, was considerably shorter than I. And we'd been working together. Hmm. Maybe three weeks. This was April 1st. So I told him, I said, come on. So I picked up my gun, grabbed him, and we ran across our, our position. And I looked out, and I could see our gunner was, whatever problems he was having. And I could see where the others were pinned down. And they were getting no relief. So I told Brian, come on. And grabbed him and jumped the lines and started out across this rice field. And two things, 50 years later almost, almost 50, 48 years later, strike me as I, as I often ponder the situation. One, they were incredibly bad shots. And two, there must have been an angel over the three of us. Because when, when, I, when I started out, Brian followed me. And an Indian from Ada, Oklahoma, an Apache Indian by the name of Frazier, great guy, ran with us. And we ran across that rice field with them shooting at us. And I managed to put my gun between where our guys were pinned down and where they were receiving the fire, and I just opened up, just opened up. Brian and Frazier were with me, and we were able to get the five of them out of the, out of the bomb crater back to our lines, and the two were medevacking, but I think we had one other wounded in the, 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 the engagement. But we had Cobras that come in, they came in and gave us protective covering, and we made it back to our lines and that was where the, uh, my company commander says, no, he was doing what any Marine should have been doing under the circumstances. So just to, just to make sure people understand, you run towards the gunfire in front of and well, in between where the guys were wounded yeah. and the enemy. Yeah. In an open rice field, and for anybody who knows what a rice field looks like, there's no trees in a rice field. No. There's no cover. Wide just, open just the rice paddy dikes. And uh, it's one of the, one of the, that was where I got my, my combat promotion to corporal. One of the things I'll take to my grave is never hit us. I see the rounds to this day, even when we're down, hitting all around us. Not one of us, none of the, neither of the three of us so much as had uh, a bullet hole in a shirt. It was the most remarkable example of poor marksmanship <laughs> that I've ever seen in my life. Well, At least uh... for us, and I and I think. I think my, my combat experience was that way. Almost out of body for me. Um, there is a, 
there is a day that I don't think I'll ever forget as long as I live. I had a good friend, Ken Martin. He was our, our platoon sergeant. This was Ken's second tour in Vietnam. Married, had two, two sons in Tennessee. And we were on, on patrol coming back in and they, they hit us. So we reconned by fire. We online reconned by fire. By then, I, I, had the, I had a squad, and I was carrying an M16. And Martin and I were together, and my piece had a cook-off. And it had, that had never happened before. I actually had a chrome bolt in my M16, which was probably the best, best you could get. I was the only one in the platoon with a chrome bolt. And it never failed. I mean, it never failed before, and it never failed after that. On this particular day, we were about 25, 30 feet from a ravine. I had a cook-off. And that's where the, the round doesn't clearly ignite. It's a slow burn of the powder in the cartridge. It expands in the chamber, and it can't be ejected with the, uh, the ejector and extractor on the bolt. <coughs> so I told Martin, I said, look, I have to clear this. Wait for me. He went on. And it was just a matter of just taking your rod out, knocking the round out of the chamber, putting your bolt back in, and putting the piece back together. It took me probably two minutes at most. But Martin had had either jumped into the ravine or there was some says there was a little bridge. I don't remember the bridge. A little foot footbridge across the ravine and had been shot and fell into the ravine. But I remember hearing the AK go off. And I went to the ravine and I saw Martin laying at the bottom. So I yelled for cover fire, and I went in the ravine after him. And uh, I couldn't get him up over, over the. I tried to lift him up, and I couldn't get him up. Couldn't get him up high enough. <clears throat> and it was kind of misty that day. I think the thing that struck me the most all these years after that incident is seeing the blood because he'd been shot from shoulder to hip running down my arms and trying to get him up. And uh, he was still alive. And directly there was another set of arms and we were able to lift him up and the guys grabbed him at the top. And it was Wesley Richard, my friend from New Sarkey. And uh, Ken died Ken died on the helicopter back to, to the hospital. And years later, Wesley and I and our wives were at the wall in Baton Rouge. They had, had the moving wall. And Wes, God bless him, I went through the whole thing and I got one little piece of shrapnel under my 
left armpit that went through my flight jacket and just broke under the skin. <coughs> Corman pulled it out, bandages up, and I refused to go back to the, the hospital. I stayed in the field. For, it was a mortar attack. But Wes was hit three times. Sometimes with me and sometimes not with me. And uh, But I asked him, I said, how in the hell did you get to where Martin and I were? He says, well, he says, I was on the, on the radio at the platoon command position. He says, I was listening to the radio and I heard y'all coming in when y'all were ambushed. He said, I heard the gunfire. He said, on the radio I heard, Martin is down. Thompson has went in after him. And he says, that's where I ran from the CP to where you guys were. And I saw you couldn't get him up by yourself and jumped in the ravine and helped me get him out. And uh, that was all he would say. That was all he would I heard you, and I went to help. And no question. No question. No question at all. And uh, I could not save my friend that day. And that has, that has been with me for June 15, 1970. It'll be 48 years this June. Uh, second tour. And he just... Instead of waiting for me, he went ahead and by himself. And uh, and I think to myself, probably wrongfully, something caused my peace to not work at that instant. And I like to attribute it to a higher authority. He said, no, it's not your time today. I have bigger plans for you. At least that's why I like to think of it. Because you know combat, chaos, everyone has a different story about the same engagement. Because you're focused. You see immediately what's around you. You don't see what the other guy sees. And uh, It's a, it's a forge that, that treats the steel that you become. You know, you've, you've lived a life and have allowed all these legendary Marines that we all learned about John Daly, Jesse Puller, all these guys, and you've continued that tradition. Not only through your service to the Marine Corps, to the country, as a civilian, you raised a Marine. I did. And 
Marine. Dude. Five Marine. Who has built an amazing career as the Marine Corps. But you've been instrumental in many lives without maybe even realizing. You know, uh, when I decided to join the Marine Corps, I remember coming to this <laughs> office and sitting across the desk from you and talking to you about it. And I'll never forget the day. And that day, you looked me in the eye, and I was a potential recruit at the time, so <laughs> not not even close to being a Marine or on the same level. You looked me in the eye, and you said, Chip, I've never lived so much in my life. And that's all you had to say yeah. about your time in the Marine Corps. But with the, with the passion in your eyes, I could see it. And those words told a whole story. It, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to do mighty things. But you have to do, you have the choice that Dan Daly said you had. You can lay in the trenches of Bella Woods and die and no one will ever know you. Or you can run to the fire and you may die, but you'll live forever. And that's the choice. And Marines always run to the gunfire. Whether it's actual gunfire in a, in a firefight or it's an issue in civilian life. We go, we go to where the gunfire is, and we give what we can. And when I said, you never felt more than alive, I meant it. The, the whole panoply of human emotions come to the front after a firefight and in a firefight cowardness courage dedication self-sacrifice all of that's there the adrenaline is flowing and you count your blessings I made it through this one you may not make it to the next one but it won't be because I stayed in the trench and refused to come out. And that's a lesson of the core. It's a life lesson in itself. It is. It is. I, uh, I would have never, I would have never have thought at 19 going in a core that in, in my career, I would be facing federal judges and I argued before the Fifth Circuit, the Second Circuit, the Seventh Circuit. I had briefs filed in the Ninth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. I would have never, at 19, at 19 years old, thought of myself as being capable of doing that 40 years later.
It's just not without what the Marine Corps taught me. It was that, one, you need to get an education. And you need to get as much education as you can. And two, you have to do your duty. When I retired, they wanted me to say a few words. And I, I summed my career up in terms of duty to my country, to my family, and to my God. That exemplified my career as an assistant U.S. attorney. And uh, you know, I had no, no inclination to do anything after I retired. I mean, 35 and a half years of doing Doing the work for Uncle Sam was just, I think it was enough. So. Well, Mr. Tom, you are, uh, you're a leader. You're an inspiration to me. And, and you're that exemplary Marine that we all learn about. You know, that, that maybe that, that nameless, faceless Marine that we, we learn about, right? You're that, you're yeah. that Marine. And, uh. I appreciate everything you've done for this country and for me personally. Um, and I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. And let me say this. Thank you for what you will do for the country. Your future is before you. My time is, I don't know how many years I have left. <clears throat> But my productive years, my years of leadership are pretty much behind me. But you have a whole lifetime ahead of you. Use it wisely. Use it honorably. And remember, you're always a Marine. Yes, sir. Will do. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tom. <laughs>